Welcome to where we explore the magic of music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and relive your favorite movies through music. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank Wilson. Let's have a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we play today. Recognize that music? Well, if you do, you'll know who our special guest is today. He started out as a writer and a session musician in Nashville. And uh, after moving to Los Angeles, he ended up catching the attention of a a well-known couple, if you were, uh, Cheech and Chong. And he ended up scoring uh, his first two films for Cheech and Chong, uh, Still Smoking and Corsican Brothers. And that just opened the floodgates and things started to, uh, to happen for our guest where he ended up uh, in his career he's scored over 90 films and tv shows and the credits include a lot of things that you'll recognize uh red shoe diaries uh, the austin powers movies harold and kumar 2 by my heart at wounded knee uh, santa claus 2 and 3 uh, and the cue you just heard which is my personal favorite wild things so with all that hopefully you know who it is and if you don't i'm gonna tell you I hope you'll join me in welcoming to our microphones, George S. Clinton. Hi, George. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm good. I'm good. A little uh, uh, behind-the-scenes information for people. We've been having a technical challenge, but we're working through it, so hopefully this uh, this will be the the one that will work for us. I really do appreciate you being with us, George. And I thought it would be logical uh, for the benefit of our listeners, for me too, for that matter, just to learn a little bit about you. could you share with us a little bit about, you know, where you were born and raised and things about your family and son and so forth? Uh, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was born and raised there. And um, my mother was a church organist at a Southern Baptist church. And that sort of got me started in music. But okay. I didn't stay with that music. I was more into R&B. And then uh, later on went to college and worked my way through college in Nashville, where I was a songwriter for a while. And then when I graduated from college, I went straight to L.A., and uh, first 10 years I was out here, I was a singer-songwriter and had songs recorded by various people, including Michael Jackson and uh, Joe Cocker, and um, did four albums as recording artists. And as you said in the intro, it was when Cheech and Chong saw the last band I had, um, they came back and uh, said, hey, would you be interested in composing uh, some music for a movie? And that's what got me started in film scoring. So up until that point, uh, writing film scores wasn't on your radar, I take it. No, not at all. Uh, Like I said, I have a degree in music and also in drama. But uh, 
basically, uh, I came out in 1969 to Los Angeles to rock and roll like everybody else. (laughs) What I can recall of it, it was a wonderful 10 years I spent. (laughs) I got into uh, film scoring. Well, so uh, that's it. So, and what did the, the did that experience with those two films kind of hook you? You, you kind of said, "Hey, this is something I think I want to do." Well, it t- totally did because it um, allowed me to experience the things I loved the best about doing uh, uh, recording music, which was being in the studio, creating music, creating sounds, working with the fellow musicians, but also uh, drama which I said, you know, I had uh, had a major in drama as well. And so once I got into the idea of storytelling with music, then I realized, yeah, this is exactly where I need to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, how fortunate was that then? That was great that uh, that you got that opportunity, and it did. It opened the floodgates for you from there. That's, that's terrific. I love those kind of stories. Yeah. Um, in our conversations and putting this together, and I should let our listeners know if uh, – George has really far exceeded anything that I would have expected from a guest in terms of prepping for this. Uh, we've had several conversations prior to this to uh, put these shows together, and uh, I'm going to give George a co-producer credit on this one because he's really really put a lot of uh, thought into this. And what we thought we would do, we came up with so much to talk about, we're actually going to do, uh, do this in two parts. Uh, the first part... Uh, uh, George wanted to focus on, as he called it, and I'll forgive my pronunciation if I get it wrong, but uh, he wanted to focus on what he referred to as a musique d'amour, which I guess, in my limited understanding of French, is music about love, I guess. That's it. What was it it that that, uh, prompted you to think about, about doing that as a theme? Well, one of the key components of almost any score is uh, the love theme. <clears throat> Even an action score is going to have something, you know, in it that has uh, has that feeling to it. Uh, but beyond that, you know, there's uh, plenty of love themes, romance themes, and even beyond that, themes of seduction and ultimately sex and passion. And I thought that it would be an interesting uh, d- discussion to play some of the stuff that I've done and some of the stuff that other people have done that deal with how to reflect that, how to underscore those moments in a film and not make it corny or cliche or embarrassing or, you know, not always pull out the wah-wah guitar and the saxophone. So um, it's, um, I thought it'd kind of be an interesting thing to, to dive into and because there is a technique uh, that, that goes along with this. Yeah, which is what the the question that popped into my mind. It, it um, it's interesting you mentioned the saxophone and the guitar one. I mean, I always kind of think of those instruments being used, but it 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 obviously goes beyond that. Is there, for someone who doesn't really understand musical terms or things of that nature, uh, what is behind kind of like the the technique, if you will? Well, I think um, it it really depends. A, a love theme or a romance theme usually has um, either a bittersweet quality to it, a longing, uh, or an innocence, you know, just something that's almost childlike in its innocence in terms of the attraction. That is the romanticized part of the, you know, the love. And then there is the seduction or the sexual part of it, which is darker and uh, probably more rhythmic simply because of its nature and uh, a little more dangerous sounding. Um, mm-hmm. 
And uh, so I think that it's interesting that uh, both of those styles of, of theme exist within this particular uh, genre of theme. And uh, depends on what that moment is in the film. If they're just in love and just getting together, maybe it's just romantic and light and almost childlike in the innocence. And maybe by the end of the movie, they're hot and heavy. And, you know, suddenly, yeah. suddenly the music has to reflect that. Yeah, it's, um, uh, well, we'll let, the, we'll let the music do some of the talking for us. Let's, let's go ahead and dive into one of the, uh, the cues that you had recommended that we take a listen to. Um, you uh you were associated or have been associated with the Austin Powers movies, and of course the last thing I think about is a love theme for those because it's a comedy. But on on second thought, you're right. I see kind of where you're going with this. And the the cue we were going to play for everybody is uh, called chess. Can you tell us a little bit of background on that and what what went into writing that theme? Yes, this is a, a cue that occurs during a chess game between a uh, female Russian agent or spy and Austin Powers, and they're not really playing chess. It's very suggestive. Um, it's actually um, uh, an homage, uh, both uh, cinematically and musically, to uh, the Thomas Crown Affair, uh, which there was a, a sort of a sexy chess game that went on in there. And so um, wanted to have this have the same effect. And of course, because it's Austin Powers, as he's trying to be sexy and you know, play um, and put uh, one of the chess pieces up against his lips. He accidentally swallows it and has to choke. And, uh, you know, what is his cool is totally um, blown. But this this will give you the feeling of it. It's romantic. It's got a period feel to it because of the fact that it's supposed to be Austin Powers. And um, it's suggested, but there's some there's a little bit of a comedy aspect to it. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's give that a listen. You know, it's interesting. It occurs to me that that you're you're one of the last people in terms of pieces of the puzzle that comes in when everybody else has finished their job. It uh, 
It's, is that does that put a lot of pressure on you sometimes? With the you know, hey, everybody else is all finished now. It's up to you, pal. Yeah, I think it uh, it is a lot of pressure. I think one of the things you have to come to term with, terms with, and maybe even thrive on to some extent, is the fact that you're put under the gun. Uh, nowadays, not only are you put under the gun because the the deadlines have gotten shorter. Um, when I started out, because there were no, uh, there wasn't such a thing as digital editing and film, right. I was edited, edited on film. And so if they wanted to see a special effect on film, they had to wait for it to come to be created and previewed at the, um, whatever, the optical house. And that, that would give me at least an extra week of writing. And that's no longer the case. So, you know, it's that has gotten shortened. And then you also are coming into a situation where they've been on this film for a long time. And a lot of the uh, battle lines have been drawn. And so you have to kind of gingerly, <laughs> you know, figure out where the toes are buried and, uh, <laughs> and hope that you don't step on them uh, as you as you do your job. And the third thing that makes it much more of a pressure nowadays is usually when you come on to a film, they've already got what they call a temporary score in place. A temporary score is a score that they put in before they hire the composer to do original music to get a sense of what the film, how the film is doing. And a right. lot of times they'll actually... Um, they'll actually um, show the film to uh, an audience with the temporary score in it. And then when you're hired to do it, they either love the score or they hate the score. And so um, when they hate the score, I love it, the, the temporary score, because <laughs> then I get to do whatever I want. But if they love the score, then I'm faced with the additional pressure of having to do it my way and yet satisfy the... Um, the musical sort of addiction they've they've come across they've come into from having heard this temp temp score in there for so long. Was there? Uh, I don't want to get too deep in the woods on this, but for temp tracks, did there seem to always be like one or two composers that were used more than another, or was it just you know any, any number of things that were used for temp tracks? Well, I think if you talk to any composer in Hollywood. Uh, one of the, the things they've come up against time and time again is Tommy Newman. Tommy, Tommy Newman's music is just so adaptable. Huh. You could put it under um, a funny scene. You could put it under uh, a sexy scene. You could put it under a, an emotional scene. There's something about his music that's like an emotional sponge and or uh, it just seems or an emotional chameleon. It adapts to that moment. And um, and uh, and as such, it's really great for people who are looking, uh, you know, for temp scores because it gives them a chance to not have it go too far, too dark or too light or too anything. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I love that. Um, the next one on your list was another composition of yours. This comes from a uh, a film called Joe Somebody. Now, the title of the cue is is the Kiss. This sounds interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Joe Somebody is a movie where Tim Allen plays this uh, kind of uh, nobody, really, at a big corporation. And he's bullied by a guy over a parking space, and he challenges him to a fight. And then starts training with John Bellucci uh, to to beat this guy up. <laughs> it's like a you know, kid <laughs> in school. And he decides he has the strength not to fight this guy. And along the way he sort of falls in love with this woman 
and she falls in love with him. And, you know, the love theme, what I like to do with a love theme is I go to the place where it needs to be its fullest, as in, in this case, it was where they kiss for the first time. And it was towards the end of the movie. And I write that cue. And then I go back and, and, and sort of fill in the places where they're falling in love with less developed versions of the cue that I've now written that I know that, that they have to get to. Okay. So it gives us something to shoot for. This particular scene, as I said, there, towards the end of the movie, he decides not to fight. Um, she's, you know, finally confesses how much she in love she is with him. And finally they kiss and see if you can find, see if you can determine uh, where the, if the music's telling you where their lips meet, uh, where they actually finally kiss. Okay. Let's, uh, let's give our listeners a chance to check that out. This is a, uh, a cue from the movie, uh, Joe, somebody, and it's called the kiss. I wonder if they were able to tell. It, uh, I'm sure they were. That, 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 that's what's so interesting. You know, I remember, um, I, I think you and I have already talked a little bit about the fact that, uh, other than yourself, of course, one of my favorite composers is John Barry. And he, yeah. I know he was quoted once about saying that he's, uh, at one point, he said, I'm not a film composer, I'm a musical dramatist. Wow. Uh, and yeah, which, which I thought was actually a pretty good way to describe it. You are you can almost in essence tell a story through music uh, just like you talked us through there with that last cue. So it was real, real interesting. I love that. And the fact that you, you wrote the final version of the theme, but then you went back in the film and, and started to, to write things that could be connected to that musically. Right. Uh, so it, it, it helps the thread of the film. That's terrific. And uh, um, John Barry is one of my favorites too. I hadn't heard that quote, but that is totally my mantra. I am uh, first and foremost, well, 
I am at the same time a storyteller and a composer, you know, and I'm yeah. equal parts of both. And I tell students, if you're not as, as uh, much of a storyteller as you are a composer, find another gig because you're going to be miserable composing for movies. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, here, here's a here's a, a composition that you chose not written by you, and I have to unfortunately say that I haven't seen it, so I don't have any background on this. You had uh, you mentioned a, a, a track from La La Land called uh, Mia and Sebastian. Uh-huh. What was it that uh, that drew you to uh, to choose that one? Well, this particular movie is wonderful <laughs> in the sense that it's a real throwback to movies of that time, these uh, musicals, movie musicals with dancing and, you know, it heightened romance. And um, the Mia and Sebastian theme, he is a piano player, jazz piano player. The, uh, I forgot the actor's name that plays Sebastian. But uh, this is the theme that he comes up with for them that follows them throughout the film. And it's just, it's wonderful. And the, the way he starts it with just piano and then develops it into full orchestra, where they're actually dancing at the end of this particular scene is, is terrific. And it's, uh, you know, two years ago, I guess, but it just goes to show you, you know, you've heard some of my stuff and then you'll hear some stuff later. That's, uh, that's, uh, even older than mine. And <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, you know, you, you, the romance, the innocence, the beauty, uh, the, those, those, uh, poetic feelings. And, and I would imagine that this would be another great example there. If you saw, some of these things with no music whatsoever, it might, I don't know if I'd say falls flat, but it just doesn't have nearly the same emotional impact as it does when it's properly scored, like what you're talking about. That's certainly true. And, and Justin Hurwitz, who, you know, who wrote the music for this, is just a genius and a very young genius. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, well, it's really worth seeing. I, and, and people have told me, and I'm just one of those things I got to get to when I can get to it. But And that's a new... That's a new name for me in terms of composers, so I guess he's an up-and-comer then, huh? He is. He did um, First Man. Is, is it First Flight? What was it? First Flight, the movie this year. He did the score to that, um, gosh, First Man, about the first man on the movie. Oh, okay, yes. I, I, I can't remember precisely the title, but I do know what you're talking about. But anyway, okay. he was up for, the, up for the Oscar for that one. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he's, a, he's really a talent. Hmm. Now let's let's uh, hear for ourselves. This is a uh, this is a cue from the film La La Land. It's called Mia and Sebastian.
All right. You know, you you might think I don't ever go to movies. Here's another one I haven't seen, but but I've heard so much about it. Oh, yes. Uh, not only just the film itself, but also about the music. Yeah. And so I'd really like to hear your thoughts on it. We're talking about a, a film called Last Tango in Paris, which at the time was, if I recall right, it was rated X. It was thought to be almost, you know, borderline pornographic and... Uh, but but you know a lot of people love it. I mean, Midnight Cowboy was kind of was rated X two when it came out, and it got all kinds of accolades and stuff. But uh, interesting that you chose this. It's this is the main titles from it. Uh, talk us through that a little bit. What was it that intrigued you about that? Well, Last Tango in Paris. Um, it's a it's a French film, uh, 1972, and it was a Bertolucci film. You know, who's a he's a very expressive and to some extent exaggerated, heightened kind of director. And Marlon Brando and Maria Schneider were the, the leads in it. And uh, he's older and she is a younger Parisian woman. And it's almost like nine and a half weeks uh, or even uh, Shades of Grey. Uh, I mean, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey in the sense that there is this um, almost purely sexual and almost obsessively sexual relationship, uh, which you see becoming more and more harmful to this younger woman, to the younger woman, uh, as she becomes, uh, as, as the older man becomes obsessed with her. And um, there is a, an infamous um, uh, butter scene that I won't uh, go into. <laughs> yeah, we, we, want, we want to keep the program PG today. So, yeah. Exactly. Okay. But uh, I was interesting. I was uh, reviewing it because I said, man, that would be a great piece of music to have in this. And I, I reviewed the film, and there's no music under that scene at all. But uh, wow. there, there is the love theme, which is very Parisian. Uh, Gaeto Barbieri is a jazz musician, a saxophone player. And um, he was hired to, by Bertolucci to do this, um, to, excuse me, to do this uh, score. And in a way, his, you know, talk about saxophones and, and, and sex or, or seduction, it sort of set the style um, for, for a lot of films that followed. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's check this out then. This is uh, again the main titles uh, music for the film Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> Thank you. 
you were uh, mentioning the director of that last film, and it, it kind of made me think about, um, and I'm sure it varies from project to project. How how involved are the directors in uh, in, in scoring a film? Well, it should be a collaboration. Uh, the director is called the director because they're there to direct all the aspects, artistic aspects, technical aspects of the film to help serve their vision of the story, or at least the approved vision of the story by from <laughs> the producers and direct uh, film company. But And the executives, yeah. Executives. Hopefully it's, it's close to their vision. And uh, my favorite directors are the ones who make it a true collaboration. My process is after I'm hired and I sit with the director, we have what's called a spotting session where you actually choose the spots in the film where there should be music. And you have these wonderful creative discussions about why it needs to be music, what kind of music it should be. Should it be a theme? Should it be this person's theme? What point of view is it going to have? Really wonderful, deep, creative discussions about it. And then I go away and I start writing stuff and uh, they come out to my studio. I have computers that I do mock-ups on so that they can get a sense of what it's going to sound like. And we sit here together and we go through each cue and they'll go, oh, no, 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 I don't like the oboe there. And I'll say, okay, let me try trumpet. And I put the trumpet sample in and they go, yeah, that's it. You know, or, or maybe we should take out the rhythm here or maybe we should stop it here. So... It's a real wonderful uh, back and forth creative dance between a composer and a director uh, when it is a true collaboration. I've also worked with directors. Oh, that's my dog. That's okay, yeah. Don't want it to be a collaboration. They just want you to, you know, they want to hand you the blueprint and have you do exactly uh, what the blueprint says. And that's fine too. It's a different kind of. Uh, it's a different kind of process, less creatively satisfying, but nonetheless, um, you know, good work to have. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so that's that's my favorite kind of director to work with is somebody who's a true creative partner. And when he uh, when we get into uh, uh, the next part, uh, episode two, if you will, I'll have to tell you some interesting stories about a producer that was notorious for not liking scores and stuff and how it all ended up, but we'll get to that another time. Okay, okay. Um, if I recall correctly, Red Shoe Diaries was a, uh, th that was a TV series, was it not? It was a Showtime uh, series uh, directed, and here's one of those directors I was talking about that was a true uh, appreciator of the power of music and a true collaborator and didn't mind letting you know what he liked and what he didn't like, which I like to have too. So then I don't have to guess. Yeah. And so um, he created this show called Retro Diaries and um, it was um, a big hit. They did 13 seasons or more of it. And um, he had me on as the uh, composer. And after the first series, um, after the first, um, yeah, after the first 13 shows season, mm -hmm. um, the way that I would do it is I would just, uh, he would send me scripts and I would go into the studio with my favorite musicians and I would just write themes and stuff and take those in there with me. And we would have a wonderful two or three days of just creating music around those themes. So I would send those to him and they would edit the the series to my music, <laughs> which is like Whoa. composer's dream, right? No kidding, but did I understand right? You got a script. You didn't get like a uh, you didn't get a print or anything. You you had no visuals to go on, just the script. That's correct. Uh, but I, that was after wow. the first, after the first season. 
Um, and, uh, and so he was, he trusted me, he trusted my instincts and, uh, I just, you know, I was able to do what I thought it needed to be and he trusted that. And so uh, it was great. Man, that's, that is, I, I, I bet, cause I'm sure that there, there's some directors that may know what they want, but I don't think they, I don't speak from experience. I'm just kind of speculating and asking it. They don't they don't know a lot about music and they, and, and they just know what they like and what they don't like. But right. I can see someone who doesn't really have any understanding or appreciation of music kind of getting their getting into your business and not letting you create. And yet that that's a really refreshing story to hear. And, and plus the fact, I just think it's impressive based on a script that you were, you know, writing themes as, as, as it went along. That's let's, let's hear an example of that. Okay. This uh, is, uh, this is called Always in Blue. It's a, it's a very seductive. Uh, this particular scene uh, is about a, uh, a prostitute who uh, always dresses in blue. And it's a very, but she has an innocence about her at the same time. And so this scene, she is talking to somebody and, and yet you see these images of her, you know, uh, dressed in blue and beautiful, and uh, this whole series was a sort of an erotic series. If you haven't seen any of them, they're erotic by nature. Mm-hmm. And it was David David Duchovny's first big break. He was the uh, the host of it. So um, each 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 show was a separate story uh, about a particular uh, woman. And uh, this is uh, always in blue. Okay, let's have a listen.
I, I got to imagine that it's hard to sometimes separate what's going on in your life from from your work, especially since you're, you know, into drama and and writing for that. And the reason why I bring that up, piece for, I'll never forget. I went uh, an event that was tied to a celebration of John Barry's music at uh, in, at uh, Carnegie Hall. And there was a short Q&A that they did in the afternoon before the performances at night. And someone asked and pointed out, uh, you know, I know that you wrote Somewhere in Time uh, right after both your parents had died six weeks apart. Did did, did that influence, you know, how you went about scoring the movie? To, to which he replied, none of your damn business. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, but you know, having said that, it's hard, it's hard not to separate that. Is that hard sometimes when life is happening around you to be able to separate that from what you're trying to create? It certainly is. I <laughs> just had our daughter and I was working on a, a film and we were watching uh, Sesame Street, you know, with her. <laughs> she was old enough to watch Sesame Street. And I had written this beautiful love theme and I like to play my stuff for my wife and get her feedback. And I said, I played it for her, for, for her and it went, da da dee da Da, da, dee, da, dee, da, and she said, it's Elmo's theme. I said, what? <laughs> Elmo's song from Sesame Street. You just slowed it down. <laughs> Thank God I hadn't played it for the director yet. Oh, my. Well, he probably wouldn't have known. <laughs> but someone out there would have known. Somebody would have known. You know, um, the uh, Somewhere in Time, uh, one of the things I found interesting, I was looking, you know, it's a 1980 film. But actually, um, Jane Seymour suggested him, uh, the actress in it, who was a personal friend of his. And until then, the, uh, the, uh, the producers were thinking of just having that Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, uh -huh. you know, which is used in the film a lot. But uh, they were just thinking of that being um, the only thing in there. And uh, instead of a fee... Uh, it says John Barry took a percentage of the royalties on the soundtrack, which went on to become his best-selling film score. So yes. that, that was a pretty clever move on his part. Good move, good move. Yeah, it, it, this was, it was interesting. It was a film that did not do particularly well at the box office, but it has grown in popularity over the years. I just love um, it. Unab unabashedly, I am in tears. You know, oh the yeah, oh yeah. It's just, it's quite amazing. Let's um. Let's listen to this. Uh, I, I believe, yeah, I believe it's the main main theme from the movie Somewhere in Time, written by John Barry.
this next one that you uh, that you have down on your list, interesting title. It's a virgin's blood. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure explanation. This is from a uh, from a film called the uh, Viking Sagas. Is that how you say it? I guess. Yeah, it's a uh, called the Viking Sagas. It was a it's a story, a movie about uh, Vikings who leave uh, Europe and sail over to Iceland and uh, take over as feudal lords. And they would actually have battles between uh, groups of Vikings trying to, you know, get more territory. And uh, there's a guy, I've forgotten his name, the actor who's sort of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he is the hero in this and he is mortally wounded. And um, the shaman of this particular Viking thing said the only way he can be healed is through a virgin's blood. So there is a scene of him being wooed and made love to by this beautiful uh, virgin. And so to keep it from being too creepy, (laughs) (laughs) I wanted the music to be beautiful. And I used a recorder for the melody, which kept it kind of innocent. And, you know, uh, uh, Northern or Norse or Norwegian uh, folk music usually has what they call a, a sharp fourth. Like if you mm-hmm. go da 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 da, you know one two three four. There's a fourth note. They go one two three four, one two three four five. You know, so it's less, it's it's this a little bit of a different take on the scale. And so I use that in this uh, piece too to give it that that feeling. Okay. things occurred to me is that i'm curious have you ever you ever taken on a project and then then and then you you see the rough cut or whatever it is and you think to yourself oh this is not a good movie at all <laughs> i'm not asking you to, to name any but i'm just no, saying I, you know, has that ever happened in your career or? Oh yeah, absolutely absolutely I, I remember a story from uh, david raxon you know who did laura um uh, who said uh, after doing Laura, a friend of his called up who was the head of a studio and said, we have a movie we would love for you to score. We're really worried about it. And he said he went to the screening and he saw the movie and it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And when the executive said, what do you think? He uh, said, well, I feel a little bit like an undertaker. I I think I could probably make it look a little better, but I can't breathe any life into it. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a great line. 
have felt exactly the same way. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes scores can, I don't know if you want to say save a movie, but they certainly can bring it up a couple of notches if it's really scored exceptionally well. It, I, think uh, that, I think that's true. I think that's one of the magic uh, elements of, of music and film is that it does have the ability to elevate the film and uh, to take it to a level that it hadn't been at before. But you know what? The same is true of the film. Uh, sometimes the film can elevate the music to the to a level that it that it wouldn't have been at. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like? Um, gosh, I've got so many questions. It's amazing. I, do you do you think uh, you could either talk about yourself or other composers? Do they do they write for something that is listenable on its own, or is their sole job? Just write for the film. I don't care whether or not it's listenable outside of that context. Does that, does that make sense? When oh, no, it totally does. And I think every composer is faced with that because, you know, you want it to be good music in the end. But at the same time, your job is to score that film, right? And if that means that you just play chords or you just do ambient uh, uh, synthesizer stuff or, you you know, whatever that film needs or whatever the director and producer's decide that, that that's what they want you to do, you're a gun, you're a hired gun. And in the end, you know, it would be great if uh, if it was art. And sometimes it approaches being an art. I think I think film scoring is an art. But yeah. I think I think above and beyond that, it's practical music. It's not music designed to be listened to in the abstract. Uh, and so that's what really bothers me about seeing score CDs uh, trashed you know, because they're not designed to be listened to simply as music. They were designed for a specific function. It's like the difference between a screenplay and a novel. Yes, there are both words in screenplays and novels. They both tell stories, but they're written and designed for separate forms of media. And mm -hmm. I think the same thing is true about film music and uh, music that's designed simply to be listened to in the abstract. It's great when it can be both, but that's not the primary goal. Yeah, and yet uh, growing up as a as a young boy would attract me to soundtracks, and I'll be giving away my age a little bit, which I don't care. I'm 61, but you you're know this a, was long. You're huh? still a kid. Yeah, still a puppy. Okay, um, but you know, long before there were DVDs and Blu-rays, and or even Beta and VHS. Believe it or not, boys and girls. The only way you could see a movie was to actually go to the theater and see it. And if you, uh, what I found was that if there was a movie I really liked and I just, you know, it's not, the movie's not playing forever in your local cinema and it, sometimes it would take years for it to show up on TV, mm -hmm. you could put the album on and, re and relive the movie. Exactly. And, and I think that was one of the things that attracted me to it. And I'm, I'm kind of interested if, I wonder if things have gotten out of the point where anybody can just flip in the, the Blu-ray or whatever, if that hurts soundtrack sales. I, I, I don't know. I don't have any hard figures on it. I'm just curious. Very good point. I hadn't thought about that, but it's probably going to have some influence. You know, you wouldn't have bought as many, right? Yeah. Yeah, pro yeah, probably. If I can just, you know, flip in the movie and see it again, although it's, you know, you don't want to necessarily, you want to hear 40 minutes of music and take two hours to hear it, but. It just, you know, excuse me, uh, to some extent, to a non-musical uh, person, mm -hmm. 
And to uh, say a layperson, somebody who's not in the uh, the film industry, a soundtrack recording is a souvenir. It's a souvenir of the film, mm-hmm. you know. And you're right in the sense that uh, it helps you relive some emotional moments and recall some feelings that you had while you saw the movie. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying this, George. I, again, very, very appreciative of your time. Me too. Um, now we're, we're, I'm glad we're, we're going to switch gears a little. We're still in musique d'amour, but we're going from the love and romance part. Now we're going to get down to the seduction and passion. There you go. Yeah. Now the, uh, the first one we were going to play, uh, on that is, uh, is another one of your compositions. This is, a from a film called the astronaut's wife. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? The Astronaut's Wife is a film uh, starring Johnny Depp and Charlize Theron. And uh, he comes back from outer space after being out of communication for two minutes uh, while he's doing a spacewalk. And she notices there's something different about him now that he's back. Um, he was out with his uh, spacewalking partner, uh, who also was un- uncommunicated for two minutes. And that guy killed himself. So when he got back, so Charlize is really worried about her husband and she and he's refused to talk about those two minutes until they're at this big party uh, in New York and uh, he's had too much to drink and he takes her aside and he begins to describe to her what happened during these two minutes. And while he's doing that, he is starting to make love to her. And there is a wonderful scene where they're standing against the wall and suddenly the wall tilts all the way back and they're in their bed at home. It's just a wonderful cinematic moment. And instead of it being tender or sexy, he becomes more and more violent towards the end of it. And it's no longer him making love to her. The whole idea of the movie is she's convinced he's been, uh, he's been, what's the word? Not invaded. Uh, uh, Abducted or uh, taken over by an alien presence. Okay. And he's convinced that she's lost her mind. So the whole movie, you're trying to determine who you think is right. And at this particular point, you begin to think maybe she's right. Okay. Fascinating. It'll be interesting. Let's listen to this cue. It's from The Astronaut's Wife, and it's called Two Minutes.
this uh this next one that we want to play i i just i remember seeing this in the theaters and was blown away uh not only just by the the story and and all those sorts of things but the music also was just spot on done by another one of my my favorite composers this is a this is about basic instinct uh, the movie is basic instinct and uh we were going to play the main theme here. What was it that drew you to that particular selection? Well, Jerry Goldsmith, but besides John Barry, it sounds like we have very similar tastes. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith <laughs> and John Barry are two of my all-time favorite composers. And Jerry Goldsmith was able to, with this movie, with this theme, get a sense of seduction and darkness um, that... I hadn't heard before in a in a film score, and it's beautiful. And what was interesting, uh, Goldsmith actually said it was probably the most difficult he had ever scored. He said it's a very convoluted story, very unorthodox characters. It's a murder mystery, but it isn't really a murder mystery. The director, Paul Verhoeven, had a very clear idea how the woman should be, and I had a very hard time getting it. Because of Paul kept pushing me, I think it's one of the best scores I've ever written. Hmm. It was a true collaboration. Again, a collaboration and both coming up with something that was even better than they you know, probably would have uh, without each other. Yeah, I, I like your description, too. It is, it is you know, sensual, but it's also very haunting and, and dark, I think was the word you used. And you're right. It just fit the film perfectly. And this is just the the main titles, which obviously is going to help set the mood for the film. So let's, let's listen for ourselves. This, again, the uh, main title from the film Basic Instinct, uh, written by Jerry Goldsmith.
another uh, favorite of mine uh, we're going to play next, and it prime nominated for something because I, I, to me it just really enhanced the film a great deal. We're talking about a movie called Body Heat. And as I recall, this was, what is it, Lawrence Kasdan, I think, was the uh, director and the writer. It was one of his first efforts, and it was just a huge hit. Yeah, and it, was. The, it was. And the... And the, and the music was was a big part of it, and yet, tragically, now it's been corrected years later, but there was no soundtrack album for this at all, I which know. always kind of confused me. Now, you know, there was a bootleg that finally went around after a while. Uh, now they've done a, a legit release that actually has, you know, un, uh, unpreviously released music and even demo recordings, which if you don't have it, I would highly recommend you find this this two-CD set. Because there is, there's about, uh, I don't know, about 15 demos that he did, different arrangements, different instruments, you know, the, to uh, give him a feel for it. But Well, exactly. In fact, I guess Kasdan met with four uh, composers. Who wow. Had, but only John Barry told him of ideas which were close to the director's own. And it was the demos and those ideas, whatever they were, that got him the gig. Hmm. Do you... Is that a normal situation where there's like a competition where there's three or four of you up for oh, yeah. for films and you have to have a meeting and, and talk about what you do and those sorts of things? Exactly. And it's always you're, you know, you're 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 treading on a thin ice here because if if the ideas which Barry had were not the ones that were close to the director's own, he would have blown himself out of the water. You know, so and when I go in to take these meetings, I come up with ideas that I really feel strongly about, but at the same time um, I'm respectful and try to listen to what they're telling me. And if it seems like these ideas that I've come up with are not going to be well received at that meeting, then I just keep them to myself. <laughs> yeah, well, you're part salesman too, obviously. So you, that's exactly it. And uh, and listening, listening is one of the most important things to do when you're trying to influence someone else. So that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, of this this is the main title from from the movie body heat and i think it almost kind of helps tell the story in a in a two-minute clip or something like that so uh, really true. uh sit back and relax and kind of envision yourself in a dark dismal bar with pretty woman walking up beside you i guess and we'll take it from there yeah. let's let's uh let's listen to this
it uh, that was interesting. You were talking about the the meeting with the with the directors or with different composers and those sorts of things. Is there um there, there's healthy competition, but I suspect there's also respect for the other composers that are out there, or or is it a real you know uh, battle to, to get this gig or get that one? I mean, well, you know, it's in competition. There's always going to be resentment. Right. If you didn't get it yeah. but at the same time, I think there is a real sense of community uh, out here between the composers, most of us anyway, where, you know, we're glad somebody got it if it wasn't us. And, you know, if it was somebody whose music we didn't like, then it's a little harder to stomach mm-hmm. <laughs> or somebody we felt like didn't deserve it. Then it's harder to stomach. But uh, at the same time, Excuse me. I think that there's a, a real sense of community uh, between composers out here. We don't have any um, uh, representation in terms of unions. Uh, composers are not unionized. They don't fall under the musicians' union. So we have no collective bargaining. Oh, okay. So we're sort of, you know, uh, on our own. And uh, there are organizations like BMI and ASCAP and Society of Composers and Lyricists and now the Alliance uh, for Women, Women, Female Film Composers, which really do a great job in helping create a sense of community and offering uh, panels and get-togethers and, you know, things like that for, uh, for composers to, um, to participate in that keeps that sense of community alive. That's great. That's good to hear. And it, uh, I, th- I think I've seen uh, some announcements of some of those type of events and in fact, and I don't know, it sounded like you were involved in it. Uh, yeah. There's, there's, um, there, I mean, there, the universities have, uh, uh, what is it, the L.A. Film School or something has, a, I guess, a degree just in film music or? Uh, well, no, it's the, um, uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's uh, the film school, the L.A. Film School. I know that the USC has a master's program in, uh, in film scoring. Okay, then maybe that's what I was thinking of, though. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I go down and do a, um, a, a forum. Uh, but uh, along with, you know, one of the cool things about co- going to school for film scoring in L.A. is that you have people like Tommy Newman uh, visiting your class. You have people like James Newton Howard visiting your class. You have Hans Zimmer visiting your class. You know? Wow. When I was chair of the film scoring department in Berkeley in Boston, I knew these composers and would invite them out, but they could never make the trip. It's just too far, and you know they were too busy. Yeah. And so they the the students there didn't have the um, advantage of being uh, in the proximity with with people, so that they could come and actually visit their classes. And I guess uh, it, it occurred to me that with this explosion of content that's going on, it's almost like a new golden age of of television, if you were, with all the additional channels and all the additional content that's being created, that's bound to be good for you guys, right? It just, there's more, more opportunities out there. There are, uh, it's, it's very interesting. I, I accepted the, the job in Boston, uh, at Berkeley, uh, to become chair of the film, film scoring department there. Um, and we were there, my wife and I moved back there between 2012 and 2015. I kept my house here in my studio and would come back and work. Mm-hmm. But, um, the uh, thing that was interesting is during started a couple of years before that, but certainly during the time I was there, by the time I got back here, the landscape had changed so much in terms of how much more opportunities there were for uh, film composers 
to work in streaming and original content programs. But at the same time, how this whole B level of movies or movies that were not tent poles were no longer being funded because the way they would make their money back, film uh, companies, were through DVD sales. And uh, when streaming and downloads started to take over, that was no longer available. So movies like some of the ones I scored, Austin Powers started out not to be a blockbuster. It was in that area. The Santa Claus movies were in that area. Mortal Kombat started out in that area. So a lot of the clients that I had who were doing those movies no longer had movies to do. And hmm. so, uh, so when I got back here, I really had to do some adjusting in terms of... Um, uh, you know, how I was going about uh, getting work. Yeah, I, I want to save it for another time, but I, I do want to talk to you about that, what, what's changed over the years, but we'll uh, we'll get to that here in a moment. <clears throat> we wanted to, uh, staying on this seduction and passion theme that we're touching right now, we've got a, a few uh, compositions by you that we were going to play. Um, this is from a film called the, A Dirty Shame. It's called Black... No, excuse me, Backslider. Can uh -huh. you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was fortunate enough to work with John Waters, who is just a, an amazing director. I don't know if you know him, but he wrote... Yeah, a, I know of him, yes. Yeah, and he, uh, he did um, Hairspray. And, you know, he's known for his quirky, unorthodox, uh, shamelessly sexual films. And um, uh, he was uh, a very interesting guy to work for. And this particular movie, A Dirty Shame... Uh, Tracy Ullman is in it, and she plays this woman who, after a concussion, concussion from a car accident, becomes a sex addict. And so um, this particular, uh, I wanted the music to be sort of, um, what's the word, rockabilly? You know, that real growly saxophone, that, you know, sexy saxophone from, uh, from the rockabilly era. Even though the movie wasn't set there, I thought that would be a perfect thing to have in it. So... This particular uh, scene is um, um, Tracy Ullman's character be, being, uh, what, what can I say, active in her new nature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're really good with words. <laughs> All right, let's, let's have a listen. This is uh, uh, from the film A Dirty Shame, and it's written by our guest, George Clinton. <laughs> It was interesting. I, I before you, uh, I just wanted to say something. That last cue, uh, 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 backslider. Uh, there was a kind of music called stripper music. You know that was big, like the uh, Nelson Riddle was that who did it? No, David uh, Rose. 
uh, did a piece called The Stripper. Da, 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 da. You know, really <laughs> raunchy sounding stuff. Right. So that was an influence too, because uh, there's something really sort of unbridled and uh, unapologetic about uh, those those kind of stripper stripper themes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It is interesting, and after a while, you can you can listen to something and maybe never have seen the film, don't have any idea what it's about or even who's in it, and you can listen to some cues and you already have a sense. Just because of the style or the instrumentation and those sorts of things of what it is. So it's, well, you know, it's interesting. That's great. I mean, if a composer has done their job, his or her job, that's what happens. And yet we come to uh, the last cue we wanted to explore in this today, which is, I don't know how to describe it. It's highly unusual. I mean, I played a, a short clip here at the beginning of the show. I love this. This is one of these CDs that I can put in and, and play and just play it over and over again. Now, the film we're talking about is Wild Things, and it was, I don't even know if it was really all that popular in the box office, but it was a, it was a really quirky, weird, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it just worked. And as weird and as quirky and all that stuff, the music was also really unusual unique but it but it works it fit mm. um I, for one thing i want one thing i've been dying to ask is that what was the makeup of the orchestra for that session because it you had a lot of percussion you had a lot of interesting sounds going on in there and i i, I get the feeling it wasn't maybe a traditional orchestra well while things uh, was directed by john mcnaughton who's another one of these directors that really knows and appreciates the power of music and really respects the professional composer that he has hired, but is also a great collaborator and wants to work with you and help you know bring out exactly what they want. And um, this particular movie is a twisted, sexy thriller, I guess uh, is what you could call it. Yeah, keeps, keeps twisting. You'd think you figured it out, and then something happens, and it, something else has gone on. And um, so it takes place in Florida, and I knew I wanted it to be kind of swampy feeling. And so the main title you played in the beginning has that feeling to it. And mm -hmm. so percussion has sort of a semi-Latin feeling to it. There's a grira, there's a conga drums, you know, mm -hmm. stuff like that. But one of the things that, about, that made this particular approach unique is I knew that the, there were going to be three bands that had songs in this film. And I asked the um, music supervisor... Um, uh, if he would be able to get in touch with the lead singer from Kay's Choice, the guitar player from Smash Mouth, and the uh, guys from uh, Morphine, which was a band, all three of those had songs in it, and ask them if they would be willing to do cameos in my score. Because one, hmm. one of the things I don't like is when you hear a score that has a specific kind of a identity, and then you hear these songs that are brought in from a completely different sonic universe or world. And it just doesn't fit. It totally does, jars the story for me and takes you out of that magic mood of being in the film. And so I thought, okay, this will be an opportunity for me so that by the time they hear Sarah singing or the guitar player playing on his record or the guys in Morphine do, do, do their song, they'll have already heard them playing in my music. So there'll be an, an automatic sonic 
connection and thread to to the the music in the film. Excellent point there. I mean, it's I've seen songs used effectively, but I've also seen songs sometimes detract, you know, and, and where they don't work. And it, having that connection makes a lot of sense. It does. And uh, to answer your other question, yeah, I, I used a string orchestra and I used uh, drums, uh, hand percussion, like I said. I used baritone saxophone, which I love. Um, I used uh, slide guitar. Um, I used uh, this woman, uh, Sarah Bettens. In fact, uh, I call her the swamp siren because I wanted that sense of, you know, being uh, being lured into the swamp, into this, the reptilian nature of uh, these people's uh, beings. <laughs> and, uh, this particular scene is a famous uh, scene because it's a sex scene in the movie that is a three-way scene uh, between the two actresses and the, the main actor. And it actually was one of the reasons Wild Things became a cult favorite <laughs> was, was this particular scene. Uh, there is a, um, a funny show on Hulu called PEN15 that did an entire episode. Uh, it's supposed to be middle school kids in the 80s or 90s. Mm-hmm. Did an entire episode on one of them getting the video of this movie from their parents and sneaking it to the party so they could all watch it together. (laughs) (laughs) How funny. It it has its own sort of cultural um, identity. But, you know, all all the the sex and stuff, uh, regardless of that, I I just think it it was, like you said, there were so many twists and turns uh, where that that movie went and where it ultimately ended up. It, 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 it just works. It was, so I'm looking forward to our listeners getting a chance to hear this. This is a, this is a cue that's called After Tonight, and it's from the, uh, the film Wild Things, written by George Clinton.
George, time has flown by, and I don't think we can go much longer on this particular episode. Um, uh, we'll we'll look forward. We're gonna we're gonna look at a really interesting topic for our next episode, and this again was kind of a combination of both my idea and George's, and we're gonna we're going to explore uh, film scores that maybe haven't been heard because maybe the movie was a flop, or you know nobody saw it, or never went direct to video. Who knows what? And also, I'll talk a little bit about rejected scores, uh, which does happen sometimes. And I think that that will make for an interesting conversation. But that'll be for the next episode. Um, George, this has been fabulous. I mean, you, you have, we, uh, we've covered a lot of ground and still have more to cover. And I, I appreciate you uh, being with us and looking forward to our next discussion. Greg, this was great. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. Very good. Well, uh, folks, until next time. Uh, We'll see you on our next episode, hopefully in about another week or so. Uh, Simply say this, my time's up. I thank you for yours. Enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks for listening to What's the Score.